Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. We're going to be running through several articles that I've seen uh, the last uh, about the last six weeks that have just caught my eye and, and made me think about how I might manage my patients and how I might manage training and advising people on training. The first article is, was in sports medicine and it was called Acute and Chronic Performance Enhancement in Rowing, a Network Meta-Analytical Approach of the Effects of Nutrition and Training. And first author the Held, last author the Donath. And it was a hugely ambitious project trying to look at all the different modalities that could be changed in um, nutrition and training for rowing and seeing if they could could bring them together to see if they could see any significant effects. And they, they concluded that caffeine um, was helpful in acute performance, um, blood flow restriction training in uh, beta HMB and creatinine were helpful in chronic performance and that chronic spirulina and black current supplementation may impair chronic adaptation. So nothing in the conclusions that are too um, unusual. Blood flow restriction training, very little data on it, so I was a bit surprised they'd leapt in with, with that. And I suppose that, that probably summarises the whole of this article. Um, too ambitious, uh, too much to cover, and certainly the the number of articles you'd be in RCTs you'd be having to break down would be vast, and and that's not what they managed. Um, most of the interventions had one or two studies, which kind of makes a meta-analysis pointless, and most of the studies seem to be small and of pretty poor quality. So uh, nothing I can really take away from this, other than some admiration of what of what they've tried to achieve. Um, but nothing I think I'll, I'll change change in my uh, recommendations. Um, they didn't particularly use elite athletes um, in the studies. They didn't limit to that because there wasn't enough. Um, the the bits that they've concluded about caffeine and creatinine, I can I can conclude from from other studies that are, are reasonably well done and not meta analysis of of poorly done rowing studies. I think all I can really take away from this is that actually for for quite a wealthy sport, there's a real paucity uh, of evidence. And is that due to, like with cycling, that there's plenty of evidence out there, but no one will share it? Or is it just due to the fact that it's a, whilst very wealthy, it's a very traditional sport and, and not much changes? And people don't want to be putting out their scores and numbers in publications. Uh, not not too sure, um, but certainly interesting, but not, not going to change anything I do and makes me think that row, the rowing world in general has a, a little bit of little bit of work to doing if that's the best that can be produced by such an ambitious project. The next article was uh, also in sports medicine. It was called The Effect of Gut Training and Feeding Challenge on Markers of GI Status in Response to Endurance Exercise. And it was a, a literature review. So another review, so probably not adding anything new to, to what I know. It was from Ricardo Costa's group, the, kind of the, the, real, the real leads in this. Uh, and again, ambitious, impressive, nothing really that um, is going to change what I do. Relatively small numbers of the studies that they, they were able to look at were, were of good enough quality. Um, and essentially what it boils down to is 
If you feel that it's good to be doing gut training, then there's evidence for that, but not so much evidence that you'd be forcing an athlete to do it who was finding it was really interrupting his training. So if your athlete, again, for me, this is one, if your athlete buys into it, you may well get some small gains from it and, and it's worthwhile. And, and certainly some athletes, you get that, uh, that feel that, oh, you, you, this is the way that you'll get some progression. It's, it's got a great kind of placebo effect on, on making uh, them tolerate the uh, refueling uh, a bit better, um, but, but not much more than that. The next article was called, it was in um, the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and called Beneficial Effects of Oral and Topical Sodium Bicarbonate During a Battery of Team Sports Specific Exercises in Recreationally Trained Male Athletes. First author Gerton, last author Ranchordas. And I have to say, topical sodium bicarbonate was a new one for me. I hadn't heard of it. Um, it's an interesting idea. And it was a, a reasonable study. So they, they managed, they, they were controlled with the oral and the topical and with a placebo, which I really liked. As often with these, the, the numbers of athletes and uh, their level of elite or not wasn't in line with what we, we really want to be, to be finding out uh, a definitive answer. Um, but there was some changes, and it was in repeated sprint performance with the topical sp uh, bicarb. Um, so hopefully the follow-up, this they will use this to a get a sort of a, a larger study looking into what exactly that effect might be, and secondly. Um, find out what on earth is going on and how the mechanisms for topical bicarb would be would be working. So really interesting stuff, uh, looking forward to see what they come out with next. And if we've got another article similar later on, the negative, the big negative of the inability to tolerate the GI side effects of bicarb um, could be bypassed by topical. Um, sounds like it shouldn't make sense though, but, uh, but maybe it does. I enjoyed the next article. It was called uh, Defecation Enhances Cerebral Perfusion and Delays Fatigue in Elite Triathletes. First Officer Vi. And this was also published in the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition. And everyone who's done sport at a high level well knows the kind of pre pre-event uh, need to, to pass motion uh, and traditionally we will kind of put that down to a mixture of nerves and unusual eating patterns and high carbs um, in the period before, mostly nerves, and everyone feels a little bit better um, whether or not that's because you, you, you feel lighter, you feel um, less irritation. And this goes back to that less irritation bit. Is it more than just not quite feeling right? Are we, are we as ever underestimating the, the impact of the autonomic nervous system and the, 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 the brains in your bowel on, on your ability to perform? And this study um, she took 13 elite triathletes in a cycling time trial, um, somehow managed to do defecated and non-defecated conditions, uh, and they found that defecation moderately decreased blood pressure, and they used that as a, a marker for alleviation of autonomic nervous system activity. That conclusion of an enhanced cycling performance following defecation is interesting, would back up what all, all our athletes say. Um, and uh, an, yeah, an interesting read and, and 
nice ideas. The next article is, again, going back to this idea of how can we get the benefits of certain uh, nutrition add-ons without the side effects. And this was called Repeated Mouth Rinsing of Coffee Improves the Specific Endurance Performance and Jump Performance of Young Male Football Players. So we're all aware of carbohydrates and using of carbohydrate mouth rinses to avoid that those gels sat in the stomach um, something that's a slightly quicker uh, response and improvement compared for, for those shorter uh, sort of one hour and under duration um, events without without ending up having carbs sitting in your stomach. And in it, I think everyone's happy that there's a decent amount of evidence for carbohydrate. And this was looking at what's a pretty logical next step. What about coffee mouth rinsing? And what they found was that um, coffee mouth rinsing with low and high doses did appear to improve performance. But again, uh, as with, with some of the previous ones, this wasn't a big study. Um, 24 people managed to randomise it and double-blind it, which was great. Um, and the only bit I, I didn't like about this is, again, with coffee studies now, I really do expect to see a little bit of the breakdown of the genetics um, as a controller. And I, I didn't see any of that. Uh, and I'm aware that there's obviously a lack of understanding about how uh, those genetics would also come into play with mouth rinsing compared to uh, intestinally absorbed coffee, but I would have liked to have seen it touched on. Uh, so the next article was called Higher Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and Increased Likelihood of Central Nervous System Demyelination in a Case Control of a Study of Australian Adults. First author Manino, last author Black. So I'm sure people are starting to become more and more aware of all the evidence around ultra-processed foods, um, these longer cohort studies pointing the, the, the finger of blame more towards them and moving slightly away from a pure sugar is, is causing all this. Why, why, is, why are levels of certain diseases and illnesses increasing in, in Western world? what's driving it and and there's almost an ending list of things that can can be linked to ultra processed foods um, and there's uh, certainly some very good books out summarizing it and the one I've got next on my reading to-do list is the one by uh, Dr. Chris Van Tolken who all parents will know um, who is an infectious disease doctor that also has a lot of television doctoring but this was looking at demyelination and, and what they did was they they took the data from a large cohort uh, study of the Oz Immune study that had uh, all the data on uh, patients that developed MS and they looked to see um, if there was a link between their first signs of demyelination and the degree of ultra-processed food. And what they found was that higher intakes of ultra-processed food were associated with an increased likelihood of this demyelination. Now, what is the method by which that, that would work? Uh, lots of possibilities. Um, as with most things in MS, they're still still trying to tease out what is the what is the mechanism by all this happens. Presumably, they're, they're thinking some link to 
whether or not it's a viral initiator and then some form of inflammatory response, um, although given ultra-processed food also causes so many other changes in the uh, sort of various pathways of aging and, and body damage, um, it'll be interesting to see where they, where they go with this and, and if they can tease out a little bit more about what might be causing it. The next article was in Frontiers in Nutrition. It was called Probiotics Improve Symptoms of Patients with COVID-19 Through Gut-Lung Access, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, and I put this in there j just because it, it's probably a good example of, of the sorts of articles we're starting to see that are slightly frustrating. It's um, just eight studies, longest having 38-day follow-up, trying to push through conclusions on the COVID data because you can get published on it. Uh, and I thought it was a pretty poor article. Um, it had all the problems that we tend to see in probiotic articles, uh, very little about funding data, very little about the probiotic types, very little about the uh, sort of microbiology of the probiotics. Uh, and then added in the problems that we're starting to see with a lot of the COVID work, which is uh, essentially just rushed short studies uh, to get to get a publication done. So I'm sure probiotics may well have an effect, but uh, this is not the article to, to make me comfortable discussing it in positive terms with, with my patients. Characteristics of the gut microbiome in East sports players compared with those in physical education students and professional athletes. So an interesting idea saying that, okay, eSports is a uh, competitive video game and is there an element of just being, doing anything at high level, in this case playing an eSport, uh, that may be translatable to some of the changes in the gut microbiome that we see? And the short answer was no. Um, I think the, the bit I enjoyed more was that the e-sports e e players and physical education students had fairly similar gut microbiome, and the elite athletes had difference. And it's back to that idea that elite sport is different. We need to be really careful when we're, we're taking studies and small studies involving recreationally trained athletes and pushing that onto elite athletes because fundamentally they process food differently, they manage it differently, their injury risks are, are different, their gut microbiome is different um, and as well as for recreational athletes we can now say that's the true for e-sport athletes. So the last article and my favourite by a decent margin was in Frontiers in Nutrition as well. It was called Sports Foods Are Not All They Shake Up To Be In Order To Formulated Supplementary Sports Food Products and Packaging in Australia Retail Environment. Uh, I wish there was more work like this going on. They took 558 products um, and said, are they displaying the correct data? Is what's in them what we would expect to be in? Are they missing out important data for athletes? And as well as just the, the fact that incorrect data can have a huge impact on an athlete's ability to follow their nutritionist advice, to avoid things like reds because they're, they're uh, or gaining weight or challenges losing weight. My, my big bugbear has always been the sweeteners and what's in there. And there's so many um, in, in the supplement industry uh, and very 
often it's not made that clear that these are these are just full to the brim of sweeteners. So I really enjoyed this. It, it broke down a few things. Um, so only 184 out of the 558 had the correct energy value um, when when they tested it, which is is really poor. Um, what's the point in in being so careful as an athlete if if what you're going to use is is incorrect? Of the sweeteners, the thing that I'm really interested in, um, the predominant sweet was stevia, um, and we know all the health concerns with that. Um, there were a variety of different claims about the sweeteners, a variety of inaccuracies, very little data on the total amount of, of sweeteners. Um, so very difficult for someone to figure out were there sweeteners in there and which one it was. 6.2%, 17 of the products didn't contain any sweeteners. Um, and if I think those products need to be very, need to be allowed to show how important that is and show it clearly. Uh, and the only way that's going to happen is if repeated audits like this force the manufacturers to declare that whether or not there's sweeteners and, and it's clear on the, on the surface. Um, they also put in some bits about the energy content of the sweeteners and how difficult it was to take into account, which again, if you're doing working with athletes who are really right on that fine margin for, for losing weight before events and stuff is, is going to be hugely important. So um, it was first off the chapel, last off the wood, woods, um, and it was Deakin University in Australia. Super, super study. Wish there was more about it. So um, that's me done for today. I hope you have a fantastic rest of the week and manage to get plenty of exercise and healthy food in. Thanks very much. <laughs>